Here's Jenna Jameson standing at the buffet, nude with an open bathroom where their is just standing right there and the techies, you know, just like bumping into each other. It was just, now that was a movie. Tops off tour this week in Evansville, Kansas City, Wichita, Dallas, Houston, Fresno, San Jose, Anaheim, San Diego, Morrison, Colorado, Vail, Colorado, Hollywood for two shows, Jacksonville, Mobile, Abbotsford, Seattle, Portland, Milwaukee, Cincinnati, Nashville, Little Rock, Springfield, Philadelphia, Norfolk, Winston-Salem, Fairfax, Roanoke, Rochester, Worcester, Newark, Providence, and Albany, New York, December 10th. I loved your documentary. I, I'm so thrilled you watched it. You, we're from, you're not a kid. No. But I'm so much older than you. How old I mean, are you, 72? Th- th- thanks, I'll take that. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm 75. So I'm a generation up on you. I mean, we're miles and miles and miles apart. And I have never paid attention to comedy. Never did. Never paid attention to radio. <clears throat> you know, people say, who's your favorite new comedian? I still say Chris Rock. You know, I mean, that sounds crazy. But when we when did that stop? Because you were dialed in for a period of time with Rodney and, and Sam. Oh, and- yeah. You know, but that, you know, in the early 80s, you know, I mean, I started really late. You know, I, I started comedy when I was 31. So wow. I should be, you know, when I talk about peers or so-called peers, you're not really peers of Jerry Seinfeld. But if you start at the same time, you know what I mean? Yeah. <clears throat> but so much older. Like, uh, like when we were fooling around at the clubs in, in 1978, before we started actual comedy on Long Island, like I was 30, but Eddie Murphy was 16, but we're all in the same room, you know? And, uh, the, and just the time, the time is such a mother. I remember almost everything about the first year or two of doing standup. Really? And so much of it from then on is a blur. I mean, just just because you're so impressionable and you remember every bad show. I mean, I got a podcast, too, called Stand Up Memories. And me and my friend Peter, Peter Bales, started at the comic strip at 70, in 79. So he was, you know, Carol Liefer and Seinfeld and Paul Reiser, Larry Miller, Dennis Wolfberg, all those characters. Yeah. And he dragged me in there and got me involved. And uh, we did two you call them seasons on podcasts, but it's ridiculous because you stop and start when you want, just like cable shows. Yeah. <laughs> but we did two seasons before we had a guest because we couldn't shut up just talking about all the crap we've been talking about our whole lives. You know, we had four decades to go through. Yeah. And it's so funny how most of the stories were about, I remember what happened in 1980, you know. I, I, I'm All my memories from comedy, for, for real, are when I started and... uh and I think you were still on, I think I started in 97. When did you leave Stern? 2001. Yeah, you were still on Stern. I started in 97, 98. And uh, that whole, that was when Opie and Anthony were still in New York. Uh, they had a huge beef with Stern. That was like permeating the clubs. Jim Norton, Bobby Kelly, Pete Corielli, uh, Jim Brewer, Greg Giraldo, David Tell, Mitch Hedberg. Like I, I remember distinctly. When I started, I remember meeting Kevin Hart outside the club. Some of my best friends to this day, I met standing on the steps of the Boston Comedy Club. Now, all those people you just named, I know most of them. Of course, know of all of them. Yeah. Know most of them, but never worked with anybody because 
just a huge chunk just came out of my stand-up because starting mornings in 1986 until I left in 2001, the only stand-up I was doing was when I'd fly to Chicago to do a night or fly to Las Vegas to do two nights. And I wasn't hanging with a gang. They'd put up an opener or whatever, but they, I'd get treated royally and go out there and get paid a lot. Because they, they, I don't, I, you know, one of the, I did not, I'm so sorry. I'm, not, I'm the worst interviewer in the world. But like, no, one, no. One of, the, one of the one things I kept wondering was what was money Eight like? inches. <laughs> I got a laugh out of him, right? Oh, you had um, me laughing. My favorite joke out of the documentary is when you commented on the guy's beard. You go, you look like you went down with it. What was it? You went down on it and came up with it. That's just the greatest. That's you know. That, the, you uh, age old, age old, age old. Probably from nine, from eighteen ten. You know what I mean. All those things have been around forever, but the right line at the right time. You know. It's I. I want you to. I was literally like, I wonder if I could steal them and have them come to the club with me tonight and watch my act and take the fat out. I am. I am full of fat, literally and figuratively. I would. I. I can't do that tonight, but I would kill to do that. I would kill to just come and. <clears throat> I honestly know nothing. And I purposely didn't try and catch up with who you are or what you are because I want this to be all new to me because I'm oh, sure yeah. I'm all new to you. No, you're not. I, and I've it's been a so fan. I've been, interesting. So my, my, I was first introduced to you uh, when I was, I'm thinking maybe 10. Oh, or not two, another guy that we no, wrecked. No, no maybe, maybe like 15. Um, it's when you did the dial-in the dial in uh, Jack of the Joke. 516-922-WINE well, yeah. is still operating. My cousin Maggie, we were in Philadelphia, and she said, do you want to hear a joke? And I said, "I said, uh, yeah. And she called up, and we all sat on the phone and listened. And, and I went, shut up. And she goes, oh, my dad's going to be pissed. It costs money. <laughs> she goes. And it, it didn't cost money. It just cost whatever it would call, cost to call Long Island. Yeah. Because it's a long-distance call. But yeah. they were phone phone answering machines in my mother's attic. Yeah. I mean, you were just calling my mother, only she happened to be, you know, in New York. But I love that, that you, you know, there's such weird stories. You know, when they do, we used to do round tables. Like if the Stern Show went to the Grammys or went to the, uh, <clears throat> you know, the the uh, Oscars or something like that, they would always have round round thing whatever you call a big ballroom yeah and like atlanta's in this on this table and detroit's at this all the different so a celebrity could walk around the circumference and get interviewed by all the different radio stations yeah and i it must have been like 1986 or seven or eight i'm way 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 in the beginning rick rubin who was already pretty big but he wasn't rick rubin yet. yeah he sat down across and when we were on on the road I always sat, it was like me and then Howard and Robin, because I'm sitting there putting the stuff up, putting lines up for him. And Rick Rubin sat down, and the first thing he said was, Jackie, I called 922 Wine every morning before high school in Lido Beach on the, you know, on the South Shore of Long Island. And I was like, that's great. I've, I've never been able to catch up with him and, and verify the story. And then my stupid book, I, I tried so hard to get my my autobiography published and i'm telling you you get run around and run i'm i don't know about you but you hit slam and you, you slam the doors yeah. you got to forget about that and get up you know you can't even you think gotta about surrender it. <laughs> and you gotta have a lot of hard bark on you 
I finally get this deal and I go out with the guy who says, I, I, we're going to sign your book. He said when he was a little kid, he was just old enough to understand the function of a phone, but he had nobody to call because I don't know whether he was five years old, four years old, eight years old, but his father must have had a dial-a-joke sticker. So this guy that signed me for my book deal, the first phone call he ever made in his life was the <laughs> 516-922-9463. He said he, he didn't even know what he was listening to. He was just so excited. He got to call somebody. You know, that's so. It, well, I would argue it's the beginning. I mean, this is a little deep for that, but I thought, I think, thinking back, that is the beginning of the internet, the beginning of a community that, of people that you don't know, where you could call in and find information and get something. I remember we called all night long, my cousin Maggie, my cousin Abe, and my sister Annie and me, and we sat in our cousin Jenny's room in the in the third floor in Norristown, Pennsylvania, and we called all night long and just how laughing. There's something so pure. Like, look, comedy is one thing. I, what what I'm doing right now and what what Tommy's doing and I, what we're doing where it's, we personalize it, that is one thing. But, man, there is nothing better than a joke, like a street. They're two distinct things. You know, I, I've never claimed to be a comedian. I've always said I'm a joke teller. You have, you I, have access to every joke. And I've never, ever claimed to have written these jokes. A bunch of them I've written. Of course, I've put my share into the pile. Yeah. So I'm allowed to draw from the pile. You know, and what's funny is that all those years, you know, 15 years a head writer on the Stern Show, I never, ever handed him a joke. I handed him a comment. Like if you were talking to your producer, Peter, and I'm sitting here and we're having lunch together, you guys, we're all talking only if I have something funny to say, instead of saying it, I wrote it down and you got to say it. Yeah. You know, so it was like a, and it, it was like magical. So there was never any joke jokes. But my act has always been jokes, 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 because that's, you know, I did that. It's just something I always did since I was a kid. I just like to make people laugh. I don't know whether that makes me a nice guy or have such a gigantic hole in my soul that I'm no, trying to no, fill up. I, I connect very, very tightly with it is that I, I just, you know, I, I, there, I have a lot of similarities in you in that I love a party. I love to have people over. You used to have these big 4th of July parties for the Stern for for the whole the whole everyone you invited everyone whack packers and 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 the crew and the staff and and so i i really connect with a lot of of your journey um there's parts that i can't that i can't connect with like but i like i'm i'm i would have never been able to befriend rodney dangerfield i would never been able to befriend i would have never been able to work my way into the howard stern show like you just have an ability but, to but I seamlessly didn't. market yourself. I, but I didn't work my way into those things. You just kind of stepped into them. I wrote you were to at the Rodney, right place at the right time. I wrote to Rodney blind. Really? What happened? I don't know how much is described in the documentary. It's I in do, my I, book. I don't. I, mean, I was. I, yeah. So I'm not a comedian yet. I, I, you know, I don't know about you, but you drop a pin in your the course of your life, and I dropped my pin in January 1979 was the first time I got paid to tell jokes and play the guitar as opposed to playing the guitar and telling jokes. Okay. There's a little place called the rainy night house in Queens. It's a and little I got, bit of a Billy Conley thing. Is that right? But what? Billy Conley, the Irish comedian was, I think a musician first, but his jokes were so much better than his music. Right. So which many is guys parallel to you. Well, in the seventies, me and my partner, we, we wrote songs 
and told dirty jokes. And the common thing was to ask us, do you, do you play the songs to make up for the jokes? You just tell the jokes <laughs> to make up for the songs, which is still funny. And, uh, Oh, I got a great bombing story. I was, I was playing, playing my guitar and tell my jokes. My, by now my band is splintering. We're about to break up. So I'm playing gigs by myself, which is how I got to be friends with these guys because, uh, I'd play in a bar with my amplifier and my speakers and I'd sit there and play my guitar and tell jokes. So I had a space with people. I had stage time. So the guys, the, the Long Island guys like Richie Minervini and Rob Bartlett and Eddie Murphy and all, they would come to my gigs because <clears throat> there's an opportunity to get on stage for five minutes because it didn't exist anywhere. Yeah. So I was playing at this place. And it's so funny. I, I'm sure when you tell your bombing stories, Ooh. it's like you're still there. Uh, I remember and distinctly sweatshopping from my chin onto my shirt <laughs> uh, and everyone seeing it. Right, right. So I'm on stage, a long bar, you know, a long room. And I'm at the end up on a little platform playing my guitar and telling my jokes. And it's Christmas week. It's like the 22nd or 23rd of December. There's like two couples in the place. And it's so sad, you know, unbelievable. And there's four people in there and I'm up there, of course, playing my songs and telling my jokes and playing my songs and tell my jokes and the goddamn Scottish bartender. And of course I hit, I get hit him back with the perfect straight line. He goes, Jack, they want you outside. And I said, who? He said, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I could still hear that son of a bitch saying it. I was like, you know, the perfect squelch. I felt like such an idiot, you know. And you don't forget those things, no, you know. No, you don't. <laughs> but it was, it was great, great times. And, but you, uh, how did you meet Rodney again? So, uh, that's... You're good. You are good in it. No, I'm not. Do you, well, you didn't go off track. You're not old no, enough to no, go off track. No, I'm just really interested in you. <laughs> well, leave the gay thing to the side. So, um, I got another laugh. So, uh, I met these guys. You know, I don't. I I don't know. I don't, I run the risk of always being too chatty, but I don't care. You're you're, you're so comfortable. Yeah. Um. My band, we were terrible. We we're a little two-piece, and we became a three-piece band. Two guitars, acoustic guitars, and a guy on on the piano, but he also played the bass with his left hand. So we were horrible, but we were fun. And there's a club on Long Island called My Father's Place, <clears throat> which was very famous, yeah. especially for the place. You know, Mick Jagger and Bruce Springsteen, everybody came through there. It was the spot on Long Island. I mean, when they were rock bottom, rock bottom, but that's with, you know. Yeah. Like, and, and the guy that owned it was uh, Epi Epstein, the cheapest son of a bitch that ever walked, and he still is, and he's still walking. And I remember <laughs> when I was first in a room with Robert Klein, I'm like, what do you say to an icon like Robert Klein? And uh, I walked up to him and said, hey, Robert, Epi says hello. He says, how much does he owe you? <laughs> we were friends for the last 40 years, okay? So my band is playing at my father's place. And we're not big enough to play my father's place. But all of our fans would come out. You know, if everybody amassed, we probably had 300. But average gig probably had 25. So the whole world would come out. So we'll go, we go there for our sound check. This is a big deal for us. Yeah, We go for our sound check. And we can't do a sound check because that cheap, Bastard Epi booked gong show auditions for ABC TV at six o'clock to make a few extra dollars. Yeah. So I'm sitting there 
And all of a sudden there's a couple comics. And I'm like, I'm as funny as these guys. And I walked up to one of them who's been a lifelong friend for the last 50 years, however. And I said, geez, how'd you get to be a comedian? And he said, it's easy. I had cards printed up. And he hands me his card, which I still have. And I said, you should stick around and watch my band. He stuck around. He said, well, you're funny as hell. You should come to Richard M. Dixon's White House Inn. So I go there. And this guy literally had his face surgically altered to look like Richard M. Nixon. Now, if you're going to have your face altered, that's an odd choice. That's a fucking but he, commitment. But he had a head start. And this was Richard M. Dixon's White House Inn and Eddie Murphy and Bobby Collins and Rob Bartlett and Dave Hawthorne and Richard Minervini. All these guys, we all started, but Dixon wouldn't pay anybody. He just wouldn't pay anybody. He was such a cheap bastard. He only passed like five bucks. And we hated it. So me and Richard, we found a restaurant let us have do comedy on a Tuesday night and you'll get some people, you'll sell some drinks, sell some food and we'll take the door. So we did that and we're so excited about this. So at the time my grandmother had passed away and I'm living at my grandmother's house with my girlfriend and Richie is becoming a good friend. This all happened pretty quick and he would stop over. So he comes in and you know, I don't know about you, but in the beginning, all the guys lie because you have to lie to try and make, justify this stupid thing you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. And Richie comes in and says, oh, man, what a night. I went to Dangerfields. I had such a great setup there, man. And Rodney told me I was great, and he's going to use me if he gets some TV stuff. He said, it, it couldn't have been better. I'm, I'm like, so jealous. I mean, I'm, I'm not started as a comedian. I'm just branching, putting my feet in the water. And where's the Rodney music at this thing. time in this thing? Not Caddyshack yet. No, uh, no, no. Just it, doing, doing way Carson. Way pre-Caddyshack. Doing Carson? He, he did Dean Martin every week for a couple of years and doing uh, Carson, you know, two, three times a year. And I wasn't a comedy fan, but that was big news. Yeah. You know, we'd go around, my friends, hey, Rodney's on, Rodney's on. And then he was mur he'd murder them. And after he was done, we'd get each other on the phone and we'd spit his jokes back and forth. Because I loved Amazing. him. Because he wasn't a comedian. He was a joke teller. He was a bang, bang. And he yeah. would say, when, when we were together, he said, yeah, I don't want to tell him where I live about my girlfriend. I want to do jokes. You know, I want to do jokes. Let's get the lit. Let's get the lit. Yeah. Which is, was my thing from the beginning. So I'm so jealous that he did great at Dangerfields. And uh, so I sat down and took every joke that was in my repertoire, whatever that I could think of that I could make into Rodney's voice and his point of view. I'm typing away and I've got a regular old typewriter with a carbon copy. I figure I'm going to send that to him and keep the carbon copy. A month before, a friend of mine is in Peru. I know this is a two-story. Wow. Wait, wait, no, it's all I know, interesting. Yeah, I know, keep going. <clears throat> so my friend's in Peru with a couple other guys selling Coke, buying Coke, he calls me up. I thought at, it was a fishing trip. He, he calls me up at like four in the morning and he knows that I'm drunk because I was always drunk. So he knows enough to keep me on the phone for a few minutes. So I'll remember the phone call. Chief, he used to call me chief with no respect at all. You know, <laughs> chief. Yeah, you, you got this speaking guy. Oh, man, this guy, Tennessee Bob. He's too funny, man. He just told me the funniest goddamn thing. He said, Tennessee Bob said, said there's a girl known as a Tennessee two bagger. That's a girl that's so old, so, so ugly. You not only got to put a bag over her head, you got to put a bag over your own head in case her bag rips. 
So I fall out of bed laughing. That becomes part of the jokes that I tell. So that's one of these six pages of jokes I typed out. Okay. And I take the six pages, fold them up, put them in an envelope and wrote Rodney Dangerfield. And the next time Richie stops in a couple of days later, I say, Hey, please, you got to give these to your friend, Rodney Dangerfield. And he goes, Oh man. He says, he, I, he's, he's, I, I didn't meet Rodney. He says, I didn't get on stage. I, I, you know, he said, but I was there. I was at, the, and I swear to you, go, I swear to you, Bert, he reached his pocket and took out the matchbook with Rodney, you know, you know, yeah, yeah, 1118 First yeah. Avenue. <clears throat> what am I going to do? I already typed it out. It's already there. Or he says, Rodney Dangerfield. I just wrote underneath. I wrote the address and mailed it. Why not? Yeah. Two days later, I swear on my mother, I'm sitting in my grandmother's kitchen with my girlfriend who's living there with me. Nobody has this phone number. Everybody she ever met is dead too. <laughs> and the phone rings. So where's the phone? Hello? Hello. He says, who is this? It's Rodney. I said, Rodney who? Oh, I knew you were fucking funny. You know, I knew you were funny. She, and Lois like, who is that? I said, it's Rodney Dangerfield. No, who is it? Richie? It's Rodney Dangerfield. Yeah. Here's some funny stuff. Here's this two-bag of funniest joke I ever heard. Yeah, come to Westbury. You know, I'm going to buy a couple of these. Blah, blah, blah. And I went to meet him at Westbury. You know, and I had a ponytail yeah. and torn blue jeans. And my girlfriend's 10 years younger. And he's like, oh, whoa, she's beautiful. Look at that. Whoa, you want a piece of fruit? Hey, what, with the blue jeans, with the hair. Well, what a mess. She's cute. You know, a couple of funny jokes. Two-bag of best joke. And my head is spinning. And he bought four jokes and and we we're off to the races. And that was and the he to the day he died, he claimed the two bagger was his best joke. Really? Now I didn't write I, it. I heard that on the dock. It's a great joke. And the guy that told it to my friend didn't write it. And that's been probably around since bags were invented. But the right joke in the right place, and he was just you know, but I didn't get introduced and meet him over dinner. It was just like, you know, he saw a great joke. Like a command, and he just gravitated to it and gravitated to me. And then the whole craziness ensued, but that, which was fine. And I, I went away with him for two weeks and I'm still pulling stories out of my ass from two weeks, from the two weeks. He, honest he to partied. God. <clears throat> so crazy. You know, when, uh, we're in Fort Lauderdale for a week and he wasn't working. He was just there on vacation with his daughter and his son. And I was with him. You know, I, I went and got the rent-a-car, took the girls and me, flew down to Florida. I rented a car down there, then picked him up at the airport. And you wouldn't, it, it would sound like I'm making, we go to get his baggage. And the stuff, he's got cardboard boxes wrapped in string, entwined. I am not making this up. And he's he's already a known guy. Yeah. And it, it's just, it's just absolutely endless, you know. And uh, I love little, I love little, eccentricities about my heroes that I hear. Like I, I remember someone telling me, you know, Rodney would get off stage and he put on a robe and he sit there naked in a robe in between shows. The blue robe, the <laughs> classic ratty blue robe. There's not a comic in New York that didn't see the ratty blue robe and his huge hanging sack <laughs> that, you know, just <clears throat> that's how he answered the door. Yeah. You know, I mean, <clears throat> you couldn't even make that up. And you know, so we're in Fort Lauderdale and I set up his, he, he brought a, a toaster oven and he brought, and the two cardboard boxes were a toaster oven 
And the other one was just a big salad bowl. And he'd have them fill it with lettuce and whatever. And he would eat like, it's so funny. My nephew said, I eat like a monster. And Rodney ate like a monster, just shoveling it in. Really? So I set up his, his thing. I took a couple of the, those little tables and put them on top of each other so we could easily access the toaster oven. <laughs> That's not bad, you know? <laughs> so when we got to Las Vegas, are you going to set up the thing? I said, yeah, well, you know, give me a couple toots. And, it'll, you know, he lays out the Coke and boom, we go. <laughs> it was just, it was like a, it was already set in, in stone, but it was only the second time. And yeah. that was the last time it ever happened. What was it? What was the partying like? Was it like get up, go to breakfast, have a drink? Was it no, get up, he go didn't, to the gym? No, he didn't drink during the day. He used to say, oh, you could drink all day. I'm like, yeah, hell yeah, you know. Yeah. I'm on vacation. You're the one working, you know, and we, we go to the pool. Or I, it, When I picked up his daughter and her friend at his apartment, and he came out and he's putting the luggage, we're putting the luggage in the trunk. He said, yeah, Melanie, and blah, 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 blah. I said, boss, you got to understand, I am going to laugh Every time you open your mouth yeah. and he says, whatever you want, whatever, because it just was funny. He was, he's not a, fu- well, not, he wasn't a funny guy. He was not a funny guy. Really? <clears throat> but, but he was delightful and he, and he was downtroddenly funny, but he was that guy. He was that guy. And he was, you know, like you walk into the hotel room, <laughs> you know, black and white, nothing funny, black and white, turn on the TV, <laughs> black and white, nothing funny, but he's not being cute. Yeah, he's being serious, and it's just. But the silly little things made me nuts. Like we're we're with the Bihar, and we're out on his veranda. I was staying in a little motel room, in motel, which was part of the Bihar, and he's staying in the high rise. And we're out on his veranda, smoking a joint, and his sixteen-year-old daughter walks in the room and just, "Daddy, oh Melanie, don't bug me." I said, do you understand how exactly you're supposed to be catching her smoking pot? She's catching. It was just so hysterical. But that's not jokey fun. That's just, yeah. just, that just, you know, and you knew they had played that scene a thousand times. Yeah. So just, so it was, it was just phenomenal. It, you know, just it, what I a go great, on and on and on. What and a on. great life experience to have had. I mean, like, and I'm certain that people, I'm certain one day I'll be seven. Hopefully I'll get to 75 and people will be like, so what was uh, Patrice O'Neill or Greg Giraldo like? And, and I'll say, or, or Jackie Martling and, or I'll still be here. You son of a bitch. <laughs> I hope so. But just in case you'll still be here. The, uh, but that yeah, is- yeah. You know, because you'll carry and the memories like every memory, they just become the, the 1990 Stern show has become the 1927 Yankees. With it's, time, it will, it's, it is it's more and adjacent. more golden and more and more golden, you know. It was, I would say, uh, I, I've talked recently about, I, I I still think Stern's one of the best straight one-on-one interviewers with people. Oh, for him, sure. Him, him and Rogan are neck and neck. Rogan can do a three-hour interview with someone, um, but the Stern show, it's no longer what it was. It, it's two different shows. It's two different shows. It's two different shows. But, but. When you were on, it's it's interesting because I think, and I, I could be totally wrong, but I think you your involvement created the someone walks in the room, it's time to bust balls. I think that was primarily you. I You're tell people I was the sand in the gears. Yeah. And it was funny 
Gary would come in sometimes in the morning and say, uh-oh, <laughs> what's the problem? The crap's going to fly today. We got no guests, no guests today. So we're yeah. all, you know, which meant the the joke was going to be on him, on John, on Robin, on me, on Fred, on how all of us, you know, if you were getting hammered, the trick was to, you know, move the firing line, yeah. you know, like look over at Fred, you know, <clears throat> and, and, or rat each other out from the weekend. Uh, yeah. That was, was a, the best is when was, someone had a secret from the weekend and you'd come in with it. And, and they knew it. And, and they, they knew they, it. They know, you know, and, uh, and that's, that's like one of the maddest Howard ever got at me. One of the maddest Howard ever got at me was because they had this gem. They knew they had this gem that, that Fred had, had a huge, uh, knocked down blowout with his wife at the rainbow room and me and Nancy were there with them. And they thought, wow, you know, this is going to be some story and I wouldn't say a word. And he still probably pissed really because, you know, because, you know, it's supposed to be all for one, you know, all for the show, all for the show. And I'm like, no, he, that's my friend. And I didn't even say that's my friend. I'm not saying nothing. I'm like, I was just clammed up because that's your pal in this yeah. marriage. You know, it's, it's interesting to watch a friend change. Uh, my buddy, my best friend has now recently lost a lot of weight and he's for the better. I think he's changed for the better, but there was a time where he was a sloppy, fat, fucking weed eating, just fucking comic degenerate balls to the wall. Yeah. Ball. He was just the, and he's changed and I love him to death. We're still, we still have a podcast together. We're best friends, but I remember when it changed because he fell and he broke his arm and broke his leg. And then there was a shift. I think my wife was part of it. She told him, you're going to be a fat fuck after this. And it, it, I think it fucked with his head. And he went, I will not allow that to happen. He nipped it in the bud. He nipped it in the bud. But it's interesting to watch to watch friends change. I remember the first time Rogan told us, you know, uh, people are listening to this. Like when we were doing his podcast. He's like, people are listening to this. Do you think about what you're going to say before you come on? And all of us were like, no. And he was like, you know, just so you know, like, you should think about, you know, that's why he has, now he has. I think primarily a lot of these brilliant minds on because he's he he knows, you know, and but it wasn't a change in it was a change in like from like the when we just talk wild and smoke weed and get drunk as fuck. But I'm curious, did you could you pinpoint a time when Howard went from this uh fucking rowdy crazy to like starting to shift? Was it when Sirius XM? No, I wasn't gone yet, but there were the seeds were, I think, being a little sown after he started to uh, date Beth, I wow. think. Um, but we were getting hammered so we. I always say we. I, I apologize because I, say I, we. I, say I always thought it was time. a team effort, and I say we, but I should say yeah. he. Um, we're getting hammered so bad by the FCC that, you know, you, you couldn't say, <laughs> literally, you couldn't say shit, you know, and... Uh, <laughs> So that altered things a little bit, and it got very, very frustrating and very crazy. But I love that because that that was the challenge. That was the fun. You know, when Sirius started, um, it was it wasn't Sirius XM. Yet. It was Sirius, and it was XM. Right. Oh, Howard, cre I mean, when he moved to Sirius, that was the biggest. I wonder if there's people listening that don't even understand how big Howard was. Like how big and how definitive. Like, and I have to say, I grew up in Florida. I was not a Stern fan growing up. 
I wasn't an Opie and Anthony fan growing up. It wasn't until I moved to New York that I understood who he was. And I don't think I understood the effect he had on radio in general until I started listening to Opie and Anthony. And then I realized, oh, and then and then the best would be you had this huge catalog of Howard because I, I had Sirius and I had XM. Uh, and so I, what a huge effect he had on media in general. Because I think maybe you said it or someone said it, but like all of a sudden, uh, radio program PR uh, program directors around the country started going. You do the Stern thing. That was Billy West. Billy West. Billy said, West said but, that. But he was just saying what we, you know, Billy. One of the funniest things Billy said is Hollywood is a is a town full of people where if lightning strikes. They all run to that spot waiting for lightning to strike again, which is just tells the story. You know, God. the story of sequels. Billy West is underrepresented in in the Stern history, I feel. He, you know, I, I don't listen and I don't follow, so I don't know anything. But people complain to me all the time that there's less and less Billy and less and less Jackie and less and less this, that. And I could go on and on. But when I talk about any of it, to so many people, it comes across when you sit there and tell the truth, people are like, oh, you're just bitter. It's not bitter if you're telling the truth. You know, you could read my book and say, you know, he's bitter. I'm not making anything up. I got no ax to grind and there's nothing mean. But if you just say what happened and the little instances, instances of things that happen, would, would the average person be like, now what's the big deal about that? But everything that happens is is a it's, it's something that happens again and again and again so if you're seeing it once you know if you catch somebody stealing money out of your out of your you know your your uh, drawers while you're yeah. swimming that's not the first time or the last time they're going to do it you know what i mean it's yeah. just like people set up and uh the stuff that went on and on but why they they say that they chop out more and more and more but then somebody's like, oh, I just heard this whole thing on the radio. You you doing this and you doing that. And but this shit that makes you crazy. There was this whole thing where I got a hotel room in Florida. Me and my wife, we'd never booked a hotel room in time. So I called up the manager of the Florida affiliate. He actually owned the station. He said, Dave, I can't get a re reservation. Can you get me a place to stay in Florida? So he got me Gloria Estefan's suite above the Cardozo Hotel that she owned. And we paid for it. So Howard gets wind of this and we come back from vacation and he goes on this tirade for 20 or 30 minutes. You use my name to get a free room, you piece of crap. Da, 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 ba, 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 ba. And then finally I said, are you through? Now that you're through, I would just like to tell you, we paid for that room. They cut that out. So if people hear it on the radio, you never hear me say, well, I, I haven't listened, but that's what people say. No, you never, you never say that you paid for the room. Yeah. So, you know, I still get, e I probably have an email wait right now. When are you going to pay for the Cardozo hotel? You know, that's, that's, uh, you're not allowed to cut things out like that. You know, but I mean, just in, that's like rule number one and one in podcasting is like, you, you, I mean, but I guess radio is, di I mean, uh, I'd say radio is different, but that is kind of shitty. That, that's, that's shitty, really but shitty. Being, be, uh, being shitty was his, was his genius, you know, and he got rid of, I, t I tell people, I, I knew I would never be back on that show because the day I left that show, vacation started 
for Robin and Fred and Gary. Because I was the one that threw the sand in the gears and said, Fred's from Mars and, and Robin make fun of her laugh and Gary's yeah. got a big ass. If, if nobody's there to throw that sand in the gears, you know, they sailed on smoothly. But there was, you know, people say, you know, the rub is gone. Without the rub, you know, so who knows, you know. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, you know, I, I have a hard time because I feel like without, I, it's it's almost like uh, whenever I talk about Howard, it's kind of like talking about my parents, but they all got divorced. Because everyone I've always loved on the show has left it. Like you and Artie are, you, you know, obviously as a comic, that third mic seat was a very coveted kind of a prized seat that was where that was the fodder and then and like and like and there's a lot of things i bet people don't even know of your contribution like the name baba Booey was that was because of you do you know i just said this to the producer my, that's like that's my, like that is the calling card of the howard stern show baba Booey. but the big the big thing about that i said to ian the other day the guy who produced it he was my radio partner for eight years yeah we had jackie's joke hunt <laughs> on howard 101 <laughs> and he he didn't she didn't he didn't talk to Nancy. You know, he just interviewed. I was never there when people got interviewed. The first time I heard her say the thing about Baba Booey was when I was watching the screening of the movie. She had never said that. She just said that in passing. And and it's accurate, but it's so funny. And I, I wonder if you go back and listen to the tape of that day, if that's altered. And it, but it was such a tiny thing. I didn't even know that cartoon. Yeah. It just sounded, I remember how it, I said, wait. And I, I and I think I turned to Fred first and said, well, you know, is that right? Blah, blah, blah. So, <laughs> so I picked up on it, but yeah. that doesn't mean Fred might not have or Howard might not no, have. No, yeah, right. But the, the greatest thing about that is after he did that, then Scott, of course, made the Baba Booey, Baba Booey and brought <laughs> down the cart and we hammered away for like 45 minutes. And then when we went to commercial, Gary's, I can still see him. He walked out the door of the studio and he turned and said, well, I guess you beat that one to death. And that was like daring me and Fred. And I said, all right, son of a bitch, you, you just unleashed, you know, the monster and he never heard the end. It's crazy for me to hear some of these stories because you guys, and, and same with, uh, and I have to I have to say Opie and Anthony because I, I group all these groups together for for my time of what I listened to when I was early and young and in in stand up, but like it's adjacent to podcasting. Like podcasting now, people feel like they know everything about you. You guys kind of created that. Like I, like I was a big fan of Q one hundred five in uh, in Florida, and I couldn't tell you much about those guys. I was a fan of Ron and Ron in uh, in in Florida, uh, Ron Bennington and Ron Diaz. I still never knew much about those guys on the show. Uh, and then I, and then Ron Bennington started at Sirius XM and I was like, holy fuck. I knew not this. I love this guy, but you guys, but you didn't, but there was no knowledge, you know, like cousin Brucey, <clears throat> cousin yeah. Brucey, WABC, even Murray, the K as famous as he was, you had no sense of him other than this. I, I have a picture. I got a picture of him poolside with George Harrison and I show it to people and I defy people to guess who it is. Cause he's not wearing his stupid pork pie hat. So he could be any, and George Harris is this little skinny guy. It's like yeah. 1964 and they're poolside in Miami. You, you guys never weren't write. characters. You were yourselves, and then you shared everything about yourselves. And, th and that that is 100% Howard's genius. You know, oh, oh, I will never defy that Howard's that not is, a genius. That is going down on the way to Oz right. and getting the Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion and the Scarecrow. Yeah. You know, it was, it was just, you know, he knew. 
who to hang on to, you know, and that's why I, like, he was I a walked great, he was out a, a bunch orchestrator. of orchestrator. Oh, and, and that's the whole thing. If, if the whole show is killing, like the Ed Sullivan show, Ed Sullivan never did a thing in his life except put together this incredible show. And that's the name you remember. Yeah. It's his umbrella. It was Howard's umbrella. It didn't, he didn't have to have all the marbles, but he did. You know, so it's very strange. Very it's, strange. I always wonder because I know that there was such a uh, a discrepancy in pay from what he was getting. I don't. I don't. I'm not asking exactly what you got paid when you're on Stern, but like, how big was the discrepancy? Because it is the reason you left, and it is the reason I. I actually run into this sometimes where I wonder, you know, uh, we're in a business where the name gets all the money, and then they pay everyone else. And I always wonder, and I've said this out loud, how to incentivize the people that you're working with to not leave you because you they're the, uh, someone made it, said a great line. They are the steel that makes up the building. And, uh, you and, know, um, and I'm not, and I'm not faulting Howard for taking the big payday at all without Howard's name. If Howard decided to leave the show, no one had jobs. Right. No, but, no. But I am, I am wondering what was, how big was the discrepancy and was, you know, I, I just watched Be the Beanie Bubble and the young lady who was who created their website about Beanie Babies. I did she, not watch that yet. She got paid uh, $14 an hour and she was, she created the entire marketing plan for Beanie Babies and he wouldn't give her a raise and so she left. And I saw that and then I saw your documentary and I went, maybe that is the key to greatness is finding out, you know, you hear about Tom Brady saying, I'm going to take a pay cut so we can pair it get the best offensive linemen or uh, these big, uh, these big uh, athletes. I'm going to take a pay drop so we can make sure we have the best team on the field. You know, they just, they did the season finale of blue bloods. They shot a real lot of it at my house yeah. a couple months ago and they're doing another season. I think they did. I, I don't watch TV. I think they did 12 seasons and now they're going to do a 13th season and all of them took pay cuts so they could do another season. And this is before the strike and everything. So I don't know what's going on, but that's the kind of, but there was no, there was none of that on the Stern show. It was absolutely divide and conquer. You know, there's two different distinct ways of running a company, like patting everybody on the back and, and grease them and saying, we're a team, we're a team. And the other one is not let everybody be scared shitless that their job could be on the line, you know? And like nobody knew anything because everybody's cards were played so close to the vest. And I wouldn't even use the word discrepancy because it's not a discrepancy if, if it's miles, you know. And I fought from the beginning. I, you know, I don't want to bore you, but when I first, well, you're like, not bore when me we first went to mornings, uh, Don Buckwald represented Howard. Don Buck was a legend. And Robin Quivers. Why well, have other words? <laughs> Don Buck <laughs> represented Howard and Robin and Fred. And they invited me to come on mornings twice a week. My whole time in the Stern Show, my entire job description. He said, listen, we're going. He called me up. I was on the road in Virginia Beach at the Virginia Beach Comedy Club. He said, listen, we're going to mornings. I need a price for two days a week. I want you to come in and do your thing with the notes. That was my job description. That was the last that was ever discussed because over the course of the time at NBC and then at K-Rock, in the afternoons, I was slowly but surely giving them ideas, giving them ideas, and, and 
all of a sudden he's looking for them, you know? So we, so I started for two days a week and then three days a week. Pretty soon I was on five days a week because truth be told, he was a lot funnier when I was there because there were two minds working instead of one. There's no great yeah. shakes to me, but, um, so he's killing, but I got paid crap. And then I fought to get a little more. But if, if somebody's paying you a penny a day, and then they give you two pennies and say, well, we gave you a hundred percent raise. Like, yeah, but Jesus Christ, you know, yeah. I'm exaggerating to, you know, as, I, the- as Otto and George would say, I exaggerate to clarify. <laughs> wow. That's, that's Otto and George. I've always said, I exaggerate. So you know how I felt. They, like, I right. need you to feel how I felt in the story. So I'll tell you a little bigger. Right. The car was like, the car was a tw- 20 foot car. If it was a Cadillac, I need you to know it's it's fucking huge i need i need need to move your mind yeah i need to, to move your mind to catch up with the reality otto and of what happened fucking was otto otto was fucking amazing me and otto were the people in the 70 in the late 1979 and 80 81 we were the guys that couldn't get booked because we were too filthy otto, and we so we'd get booked a lot every- and i booked a lot of shows and i would book him and I finally said, Otto, I, I can't use you anymore because you can't, you know, if you can't come one out of three times, I can't have the headline and not show up. I love you to death, but I ain't booking you. I'm not going to stand Otto used my, to party. You, you know. But hang on, hang on real quick, not to digress from this no. conversation, but like people may not know who Otto and George are. Do you, Rachel, do you know who Otto and George are? Christine, do you know? Halston, do you know? Oh, yeah. Ha- Otto and George... Can you d- d- explain Otto and the, the act of Otto and George? The easiest way to explain Otto and George is that George was maybe the worst ventriloquist dummy, as scary as anything in those movies. Uh, there were years that George's mouth did not work, and Otto had to reach over and work it with his hand because he's so stoned he couldn't get it to work. And George, the dummy, would yell at Otto for being too stoned or too high or too coked up. The dummy would yell at Otto and Otto cut George's head, cut his scalp and under the hair painted it red. And he would say, and here's an impression of November 22nd, 1963. And he would take the dummy and jerk it and his hair would fly back and like his head was just blown off and be all red. And it was like, I mean, that is so foul and so wrong, but so it's, it's just descriptive of how completely over the top didn't care. He was, uh, he was, he was one of those tapes that you'd go to a friend's house and they'd go, have you seen Otto and George? And you'd say no. And they'd put it in and, and you'd watch the person watch him for the first time. And you your mouth would be open. Like, shut the fuck up. I mean, so many of the, I would argue, and I dare anyone to challenge this, so many of the phrases we have in comedy today were created by Otto. Created by Otto that we just kill yourself. You know, like, yeah, (laughs) zero. You know, I can still remember, you know, where were you when JFK got shot? I remember where I was. I was at that place, the rainy night house, a little skinny room. A pussy. The stage there. <laughs> so me and Rob Bartlett are sitting across, like there's room for the stage and then room for the waitresses and then one line of two tops where the stage is. Yeah. And me and Bartlett are sitting there. And I, I think I actually ran tape because I wanted to see what was going on. But we neither of us had seen Otto before. 
and he comes out. And when you see someone, and I was so new to comedy, it's still like 1978, probably. You don't realize that this is the guy's act. So you think they're working off the top and he comes out and all, and there's an Asian girl sitting right ringside and he puts the dummy's face right in front. I mean, nose to nose. With her. Excuse me, miss. Are my shirts ready? I know you people aren't happy unless you're being chased by a fucking monster. I thought my heart was going to stop. Me and Bart were like, you got, yeah, I, I can't believe I don't have, me and Bart were like, oh, 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 oh. you know, the kind of laugh yeah. where you can't catch your breath. Oh, I thought I was going to die. Like, oh, and, but that was his act. I thought it was off the top of his head, you know, like Jesus oh. Christ. Yeah, he was, he was outrageous, but, and, and, uh, passed probably, probably now 10 years, 12 years ago, I'm guessing. Yeah. It's a long, you know. Me and him were both in the movie Comedy's Dirtiest Dozen. I saw so that. You can, uh, I, wait, you, hold on. I saw that. Hold on. I saw that. How did I see, Who else was in that? Tim Allen. Yeah. Chris Rock. Bill Hicks. Yes. Otto and George. Yes. The legendary John Fox. Oh, wow. And, and I was 12th. I went on. that up? I went on 36th because Mike Egan would go up and warm up the crowd to bring up Ben Creed, who was the MC, who would introduce the first comedian. And they filmed it with seven-minute film canisters. So after each comedian, they had to change film canisters. So Egan introduced Creed. Creed introduced comedian number one, and we did seven minutes. They'd redo the cameras. Egan would introduce Creed. Oh He'd introduce... Oh so why went on 36 at 3 o'clock in the morning... Can you watch that online? I'm pretty sure. I don't know what it costs. It was just, it was just so, so much fun. Much. It was so wild, so so wild. And you know, they're all around. Like uh, Thea Vidal was the, the 300 pound chocolate kiss, and Monty Hoffman is gone. I knew Monty. You know, Monty Hoffman. I knew Monty. He he rubber stamped a story that I told. <clears throat> we had Robin Williams on the Stern Show once, and. I don't know at what point. Of, I know we were already on uh, mornings on WXRK. So it had to be 1986 at the very, very uh, earliest. <clears throat> but I don't know what Robin Williams was promoting, whether it was still Mork or what it was. But he came on the show, and I swear, he smelled so ripe, I thought I was going to choke. And he's a really hairy, hairy guy. Yeah. You could see the hair poking out. But Fred did not remember. I said, how could you miss that? He stunk so bad. And nobody ever believed me. And then we did Comedy's Dirty Dozen. And I heard Monty Hoffman talking about hanging out with Robin Williams. I said, I got to ask you something. He came on the Stern Show and he reeked. Is that, am I crazy? Monty said, no. He never, ever took a shower because he didn't want to share his Coke. And nobody could handle being around because he smelled so bad. <coughs> now I'll never know if Monty made that up, but God, I, at least he rubber stamped my story. But what oh, a great, that's great. <laughs> he was he was such Monty was a character. They were all crazy characters. We just had, you know, the time of a lifetime. When Stephen you, Pearl's amazing, you know, and Creed. They they were all great. They were all great, great, great. You know? When you look back at the Stern Show, what was your fondest, like your favorite day there, where you went, God damn it, it never. Nothing's ever going to beat that. 
I got 20 of those, you really? know. One day, we're sitting there, and boom, the door comes flying open at about 6.15, and in walks, I can never think of the guy's name, from Newhart. Who was Bob, the- Oh, the, oh uh, the other guy? The, the, the really, the first the Newhart dentist? show- the one of his one of his uh, one of his patients, ah, he was so Bob Newhart cast. That just that just it, it wrecks the whole story that no. I don't know this and I know the guy's name so well because it was. No, uh, Jack Riley. Jack Riley. Jack Riley. <clears throat> Boom! The door opens up, and in walks Sam Kennison, Jack Riley. Pat McCormick and Chuck McCann. Oh. And me and Fred are like, it's 6.15 in the morning and I got the Mount Rushmore of funny behind me. And yeah, we were in LA, you know, we we're doing some coke. And I said, come on, let's go do the Stern show. We grabbed a big bag of coke and got on my jet and came and just got in the jet and flew out. And I don't, I wonder if that's on the, on the web. I've never looked, but that was one of those days where your jaw just dropped. Cause any, any two of them, yeah, you know, like Pat McCormick, Chuck McKay, you know, we're talking about your entire childhood and your life of funniness, you know. And then one day, it's such a small studio, we have James Taylor on, and I'm sitting there, and it's so small that the, the guest is sitting right here. So I'm knees to knees with James Taylor, and he plays like four songs, and our, our knees are touching, and I'm thinking, you know, nobody ever has sat this close to him when he's playing a song because there would never be any reason. Nobody would ever say, hey, let me see how close I can sit. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sitting there writing horrible things about him in between, you know, <laughs> hey, when you wrote Fire and Rain, were you keeping time by banging your head against the padded cell of your, oh my God, you know, just, it just, but the stories like that go on and on, you know. Yeah. I mean, the, the the night of the of the film premiere was was over the top. Private parts. Yeah. yeah. We, and we did a week from Abbey Road, from the actual, the room where they did it, where they really? made all that, where the Beatles did all this. We did a week there. Like, you know, like it was pinch me for an entire week, you know, like, and those stories go on and on. They were just, you know. What great memories to have. Oh, Christ. You know, and I, I mean, I wrote my book and I wrote enough for two books and I, I could, if I would ever get off my ass and sit down, but who wants to read all this stuff? But it goes on and on and the crazy shit that happened. I mean, I spent two days next to a naked Jenna Jameson for the for the thing in private parts where the first girl came in to take off her clothes. Yeah. And, you know, but it the way they shot private parts, since it was so hard with the radio show going on, that there was no time set time for shoots. So it was called French service, which means the full buffet is available to everybody at all time, the whole shoot. And here's Jenna Jameson standing at the buffet, nude with an open bathroom with their pussies just stand right there. And the tech, you know, these techies, you know, just like bumping into each other. It was just that. It's, now that was a movie. Fuck. You know, the making. That, that of, was one of the best movies. Just, just, just. Was crazy. your was your was your road money going up exp exponentially during this time? Yeah, you know, it was it was crazy because um, I'm working five days a week from you know getting up at four thirty and killing ourselves. And you're not a you're not a, a early to bed kind of guy. What? 
I think I got up at four o'clock in the morning twice in my entire life. Like once to go fishing and once to drive home from Saratoga with my buddy's family. That's how rare I actually remembered it. Yeah. And it was, it was surreal. I mean, Dave, Dave uh, Herman, who he's passed away and went through a whole pedophile thing. But he was 25 years morning, 25 years morning guy on WNEW. <clears throat> By the time we got to mornings on K-Rock, he was the next, you know, he came on 10 o'clock. And after a couple of days, I'm telling you, I am bleary. And I said, Herman, you got to tell me, you did this for 25 years. At what point do you get used to it? And I could still see him. He got this maniacal smile and he said, you never get used to it. Like, you fight, you couldn't lie. You didn't say give it a month. You never get, and he was absolutely right. Yeah. And so it was so horrible. And I lived on Long Island, so I'm commuting every day from beautiful Bayville. I live in a garden spot. And do you live in the same house you still lived in back then? Uh, no, okay. but the, around the corner. Yeah. You know, I, I, I snuck up on, I lived a block from the beach and then half a block, and now I'm right on the water. But, um, it was just, it was just so great. And I would do gigs like local gigs. I could do a show on a Thursday or a Wednesday and take a room that would be dark. Yeah. Like Russell's comedy club would be dark on Thursday. If I promoted it twice a day for five, five days a week, I could sell out rascals and get the door and he'd make a fortune and I'd make a fortune, which was a gold mine. Yeah. But then we were big enough that we're getting syndicated and at the end of working five days, I'm not ready to go on the road. So you got to waggle some money. Not, of course, I'm a comic and I want to go out, but I got to be able to rationalize to my wife. Look, we can't say no to this. This is, you know, a hundred times more than I ever made. So all of a sudden, I'm done with work and going to Chicago and I'm going to, I mean, <clears throat> I, I think back, I don't know how. Like, for instance, <clears throat> I get up at 4.30 in the morning go and do the Stern show and then leave to go to the airport. And in those days, there was not a direct flight to Las Vegas after 12 o'clock in the afternoon. Oh shit! So everything went through Phoenix or Ooh. America West or whatever it was. So I'm up at four 30. I do the Stern show. I go to the airport. Get I fly to right? Phoenix, <laughs> fly from there to Las Vegas. And my show at the Riviera was at 10 o'clock, which means it's one in the morning. I've been up since 4.30. It's yeah. one, and not only that, when I'm done with the show, the pressure is on me to have a, my, a huge party, which I didn't mind, of course, <laughs> but you know, I'm, I'm working on steam. And the, the guy that booked me at the time was Steve Sharippa. Oh yeah, Steve had a club out there. Right, well, he had a club, but he was the, the entertainment director. People forget Steve Shrippa. Yeah. Uh, Steve Shrippa before, yeah, before he got on uh, The Sopranos. Sopranos. And I'd go out there because everybody that came to town, whether they were TV bookers, producers, movie people, whatever, he'd invite them to the Riviera and get them dinner and get them to shows that they would really just kiss ass. Kiss, yeah. you know, like a, yeah. It's not kissing ass. It's it's playing the it's game. It's doing your job. You know, and I'd, I'd come in and say, oh, Jackie, I'm going to be in this movie. I wound up in the cutting room. And all of a sudden, he's on The Sopranos. And I'm like, holy Christ. And I called Patricia, the secretary. I said, I was just out there. How did, how did he get that fat? 
And she says, no, it's a fat suit. He was wearing a fat suit, but he had such a neck like a bull yeah. that the fat suit, it looked like that's oh, the that's size he was, which, you know, yeah. good old showbiz, you know, but it, the money got more and more because I didn't want to go. That's how I stumbled across Mark Cuban. All, all these things are so ridiculous, but yeah, that the prices got better and better. How did you, how did better. you meet Mark Cuban? Better How did you, how did you meet Mark Cuban? He... Am I going? Am I no, being? No, I'm, I'm, I, I am fucking here. Oh, I'm, I'm loving this. Okay, so I'm not being too. No, I love liquid death is water. Yeah, that's so funny. There's a, there's a, there's the, the Nuzzy brothers on Long Island that sell ice, and their, their thing on the side of the truck is, if it's not Nuzzy ice, it's just hard water. <laughs> which, 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 that's fucking which, great. Which, which is crazy. No, I could listen to you talk forever. This is, you know, I think for for true fans of of, uh, and I think even for the people that don't know the history of where how how we got to podcasting is impossible without without two things without Stern and without SiriusXM. Without SiriusXM, we would have never understood that you could do four hours. Just of fucking content. Just meandered into the long form. Yes. Because everything was tight. Everything was short. Everything was on breaks. You had to make it happen quick. If you said five words, they come and say, don't say five words, say four words. Yeah. You know, when I first started NBC, the program director, that was accurate in the movie. You you talk for more than two minutes, Howard. You can't talk more than two minutes, you know. Yeah. Oh, it's still like that at places. Oh, yeah. I went into a radio station. Uh, not, I didn't go in, but I called and they were like, yeah, we do like a, we do like a five minute break with you. And I was like, oh, I'm going to pass. And they're like, what? And I was like, I'm, that's just, that doesn't exist anymore. You don't even say hello. Yeah. It's, and those, those radio formats, when you go and do their shows, they're just, they're not. You get on the phone you just start to talk. Well, thank you very much. That yeah. was, just, you know, I'm like, you know. But that was the beauty of, of Stern. I, I keep saying Stern. There was a, that whole energy out there. Uh, but the Stern show was that you'd get these long form wild interviews of Andy Dick calling in drunk or or uh fucking just I mean the chaos. The main thing being is a long form interview on his people forget. Just like you're talking about people forget that there's millions and millions of people, you know, like like Chevy Chase forgot that millions of people were listening and Robert Klein forgot, you know. Oh, a lot of people. I mean that was the beauty of it was like and I would say that was the beauty of what happened when we started doing Rogan is like you didn't know people were listening and you were just t- talking Because you really to a couldn't conceive of it. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, and especially with us, when we started getting syndicated, you couldn't, it was hard. <clears throat> you know, if you're a comic and you think of something funny you're going to do in your act that night, like if I, if I found a new joke, oh, I can't wait. So that night, you do it, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, maybe it works big time, and then maybe the next night you can try it again. <clears throat> if you're in a movie, you maybe say something funny, you get a couple lines. With any luck, the movie comes out in a year or two, and maybe it's going to make people laugh. We're going a million miles an hour, and I'm writing something down, putting it in front of him, he's saying it, and instantly, millions, not exaggerating, millions of people are laughing at the same time. So many people said, yeah, I'm on the expressway, and you see all the heads moving because they were all laughing at the same thing. That's that's crazy, but that's just New York. But when you do that times 50 cities, 
it's a little, you know, you, you can't even wrap your brain around it. You can't, you, know? you can't wrap your brain around it. It's, it's because it really is. I mean, that the numbers, what was, can you see what, if you can find at the height of Stern's syndication, what his listenership was? I bet it had to be. It's pretty hard to, to gauge because every time he said it, it went up by 5 million. But uh, <laughs> it was like 55 stations, I think, at the height. That's and, you know, and I know I got you off track, but what what happened was we were doing so great. And I say we, you know, the show was doing so great. They were printing money. They literally were printing money. And I knew damn well, <clears throat> but nobody would ever say a word. You know, it's like the people in line in Auschwitz at the death camp, you know, they're in line to go in the showers and nobody say anything. And I'm the guy going, you're going to do what? <laughs> you know, it's like, you got to be kidding me. And um, so at one point, I was making 300 grand. This is early in the 90s. I'm making 300 grand. And I used to go on the road and go to all the different uh, affiliates. And they loved me because Fred wasn't going. Gary wasn't going. He didn't have an act. And Howard Robbins. So I'm the, the ambassador of the show, but I love yeah. it because I'm making money and selling stuff on and meeting people and, you know, having a little fun. And it just, it was just phenomenal. And then uh, I was making 300 grand. It was time for contract renewal. And they offered me a 7% salesman's raise. And I said, no, you know, no. And they're like, what, you know, $337,000. That's a lot of money. I said, that's, that's not fair. And like, you know, and it was like, Howard said, well, you got to talk to Mel and Mel said, you got to talk to Tom. And they, and you know, when you go into the boss for a raise, you get, you get your stomach in a knot and you're like, yeah. and you go in and you try and power up and it's intimidating, you know? And, yeah. I, and meanwhile, I'm the only guy ever opening his mouth, you know, nothing against Fred, but in 40 years or 50 years with Howard, I know he has never, said the words, I want more, ever, okay? Yeah. And I'm the guy sitting next to him, so look, think how that makes me look. So the guy from Rochester, Steve Chartrand, great guy, small market, and he owned the station and he was the manager. And he said, Jackie, listen, no matter how small your market is, bottom line, if you want the Stern Show, it's $250,000. It's a quarter of a million. That doesn't cover the satellite, doesn't cover anything. That's what you pay for the right to broadcast the Stern Show. I said, oh, that's good to know. And he said, just remember, he's such a good guy. He said, your job is to go on stage and make people laugh. That's your job. The general manager of the station, when you go in and ask for more money, he falls off his chair. That's his job. Okay, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. his job. So- I finally walk in with Tom Chisano and he goes, what are we talking here? What, what kind of raise you looking for? I said, I, I want a hundred thousand dollar raise. And you would have thought I just chopped up his child in front of him. He said, you want $400,000. I said, yeah, makes total sense. He says, how would you come up with a figure like that? I said, well, it's pretty easy. Uh, I know that the very bottom line for a new affiliate is a quarter million dollars a year, $250,000 a year. And since the last contract, I know we've added 10 stations, many of them way bigger than the smallest. And 
and they're all paying a minimum of $250,000 a year. And I figure $250,000, yeah, I said, if I'm not worth <clears throat> one twenty-fifth of this show, what good am I? You know, and so I figure one-tenth of $250,000, I mean, one-twenty-fifth of $250,000 is fair times 10 stations makes $100,000. And he said to me, Jackie, one twenty-fifth of $250,000 is not $10,000. I said, go ahead. And he turns to the answering at the the end machine and he did it on the end and I swear to God his shoulders dropped six inches he's like oh well still you know <laughs> because I did the math and it was yeah. and, and it was so fair it was so fair and I tried to explain we're a team you know if we're a football team don't tell me we're playing football and I don't get to watch the score if we had a station give me a few more shekels if we lose a station, take away a few shekels, but let what I'm doing, what we're doing be reflected. And they basically kind of, it, it was basically slam the door. Fuck you. You know, and it was really crazy. I don't know if I even put this in the book. So I, I just walked out and then it was a Monday and we always argued about whether we're going to take Columbus day off, but they went to work on Columbus day. And we went away for the weekend to the city and Nancy was thrilled because, I, you know, it's, it's such a hard job. It is so impossible on a, on a, you know, on a marriage, on a family. People have a hard time putting uh, a framework on uh, people like you or, or Johnny Manziel or people who have these great jobs, but at a certain point go, there is a threshold of where I'm no longer happy. Yeah. Where, you know, you know, you think money is the kit, you know, the solution, but the minute you have enough money, another problem just goes up there. <clears throat> but we all have our price. I always say, if somebody offers me, do you want to come to do a, sh a show in Alaska? I don't say no. I say, all right, $50,000. And if they say, okay, we'll pay it. What the hell? You bite the bullet. I would go. Not that I, this <laughs> yeah. is, I'm just making this up. No, no, no. 50,000 so, is fair for so, Alaska. <laughs> uh, so at the, on Monday, we come back from the city and there's a, a message on the answering machine and uh no no it always sounds like i'm making stuff up as i remember it the phone rings and i get to the phone just as the little tape clicks on so i got the first minute of the conversation and we hadn't got to the we hadn't got to the meat of the conversation which is just priceless because the classic old Jewish joke is, Daddy, I need $50. $40? What do you need $30 for? Right? Yeah. Which is so funny. So I answer the phone, Jack, it's Howard. What are you doing, man? I need you. You got to come in. I said, listen, Howard, this, this, you know, we are so far apart. You know, uh, we're really far apart. He goes, how far? And I said, listen, you know. But we had already done a little uh, preamble, which ate up. The tape, so I yeah. there's no evidence of this. I said, we're, we're apart by $62,500. All right, well, come in tomorrow. I'll give you the 50 grand. No, it's $62,500. <laughs> come in, I'll give you the 60 grand. It's 62000 All right, all right. <laughs> and for the next two years, 
Every two weeks, I got a check from Howard's company making up the difference between oh, wow. 337 and the 400 because he he needed me. And that, and that wasn't me being shitty. That's an indication. I, I was part and parcel to the show yeah. and, to, and why we were doing so well. And, and people call me... He's making billions and billions of dollars, and I asked for more money. He's got the listeners all calling me cheap, which is just his brilliance. You know, yeah. more power to him. And then that happened, you know, and I asked for more. One of the greatest things I ever did, from the very beginning, I went. I worked at NBC for three years for free, one day a week. But he plugged me at the end of the show, sometimes during the show, oh, Jackie is the host. He runs Governor's Comedy Shop, blah, blah, blah which was invaluable to me. And yeah. I'd ask comics to come on the show with me. I still have comics saying, I can't believe I didn't go on the Howard Stern show with you. Cause I'd say, you want to come on Tuesday on the Stern show with me? And they'd say, what's it pay? I said, what's it pay? You got the entire tri-state area hearing you. What are you out of, what are you stupid? Yeah. But you can't come, you know, comics are stupid. Comics are stupid. <clears throat> so, so, uh, that was so great. And at some point, one of the nego no negotiations, they wouldn't pay me what I wanted. They, I say, I'll tell you what, I'll take such amount of money, but I want an extra plug. And what he did, he, he'd always plug me at the end of the show. But sometimes the show ended at 10, but usually it was 1030 or 1045 or 11 o'clock. And you know, there's a, there's a curve at eight o'clock, yeah. millions and millions and millions of people at 11 o'clock. So many of those people are at their jobs. There's not many people listening. I said, I want an extra plug mid-show and they gave that to me so what i would do is i would if i'm working at a club or at a, a theater if i'm at the sugar hoggle theater on monday i put up my plug at 7 45 and on tuesday i put it up at 8 15 because all these everybody's in the car at a different, different time. time that's really smart and it was it was the most brilliant marketing move i ever did my all of a sudden you know what was your percentage like versus road earnings versus stern like because I'd, I'd imagine you had to be making over a million dollars on the road you know what i i never real no 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 nowhere's there you know i was you guys I, you guys had such access to such a fan base that was so you guys are the i mean but i really didn't care i never you never did the road like that i you know if i i do the chicago theater i did that's the, the what, old the, Vic. you know people people have to uh, people need to listen right now and understand that, like, it, right now it seems like everyone's doing big venues. When you were doing this in 1999, 97, 95, no one was doing theaters. Robin Williams was doing theaters. Um, probably uh, probably Robert Klein was doing theaters. Seinfeld was probably doing theaters. Right. So, uh, so I'm doing small theaters, but not making the 50,000, whatever they get paid. When I was at the Riviera... The highlight of the Riviera might have been 1998, where I worked the huge room on the bottom floor with two immense video screens on either side, like a yeah. like a you know Billy Joel concert, and but I made ten grand, you really? know, and ten grand Friday, ten grand Saturday, and God knows, you know, it was probably forty five dollars a person. God, knows. I was so thrilled to get flown, wined, and dined, and you know when I worked the Chicago Theater or the State Theater in Denver, I was making what to me was crazy money, but it wasn't crazy money. 
It wasn't. Well, did you ever have an agent? No. I mean, I had Rory Rosegard, uh I had him for a while, but then Ray Romano went to the moon. So, you know. Yeah. It, it, it's a long story. I, it, so I met Rory. Rory, Rory's still, you know, one of my best friends. Rory's a very sweet guy. He he was very kind to me when I met him. Yeah, he's he's great. It's a couple but, of those guys. Uh, who's the guy who? I don't know. You probably don't remember the guy who who had a big wiffle ball court. Uh, Messina, Rick Messina. Rick Messina. Rick Messina was a very sweet. My guy first too. album. My first album. Literally a, a, an LP. Okay, yeah. called "What Did You Expect," and the front of the album is my eighth grade class picture of you flicking them and off. I'm giving the bird. Yeah. And on the back is a picture of me leaning on a bar. If that camera had a pan three feet to the right, Rick Messina was the bartender. Really? At this gig that we booked in Beth Page in like 19, early 1979. It might've been Beth 1978 because we didn't have that weekly show yet. And he became partners with, the show that me and Richie started at this little restaurant grew into the East Side Comedy Club and Rick Messina became a partner. And I think he was one of the producers of Comedy's Dirtiest Dozen. And I think that's the point at which he became Tim Allen's, Tim Allen's manager, manager. Yeah, And they went to the moon. Do you have like, I mean, you quit drinking. That must have been, but you, what's interesting to me is you quit the Stern show and then you quit drinking like, uh, two weeks later uh, uh, and got a divorce like two a couple <laughs> you know of course the internet was rife with uh, the minute you lost your job Nancy left you and you know and all this stuff you know and uh, it, 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 I was in in a quandary you know like you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs I, I just should have been happy but it, it was I was so overworked and so crazy but it's so hard to turn down a gig you yeah. know, for that much money or here or there. And, you know, and then me and Nancy were not getting along and for very personal reasons. And people like, well, you didn't really go into you and Nancy breaking up on, on the, uh, in the documentary. I said, well, it's, it's supposed to be fun and people are enjoying the show and they know we broke up. You don't need to know more than that, yeah. you know? And, and I would be glad to explain it to you, but I, I just, you know, we were for all practical purposes kind of broken up for the last Probably three years, we were we, me and her were good friends for years before we started working together. Then we started working together, and of course we started fooling around. Then she moved in. Then we got married. So we were like, you know, we had come from a really great friendship, and so now she's like one of my best friends now. Me and my girlfriend double date with her and her boyfriend. She's just delightful, smart, driven. She's a wonderful girl. We had we had problems. But the reason we didn't get divorced because I'm working five days a week, plus sometimes the TV shows, wherever they were, and I'm going away for a week. If I finally had a free weekend, the last thing I'm going to do is look for a fucking bachelor apartment so I can cook with a hot plate. I'm not going anywhere. I'm enjoying my house, you know? <laughs> yeah. So we, we literally didn't have time to break up. And there was no way while I was doing the show, somebody's going to tell me you're going to work that hard all week and I'm not going to get drunk on Friday or I'm not going to get drunk after my gigs. You know, if somebody in 19, if, if somebody in 2001 said, you're not going to have a drink for 22 days, I would have laughed at them. Like, what are you out of your yeah, mind? Yeah. And now it's 22 years. You've been sober 22 years. Yeah. But I'm off the show. I move into a house by myself. I quit drinking. I don't have a job. And I'm getting divorced 
all at the same time. And they say, if you do any one of those, you shouldn't alter anything else in your life because it's going to be so rocky. So it was a little touch and go crazy for, I mean, I was a little nutty, <clears throat> but being on a stone show probably saved my life because you couldn't get drunk. You, you got to get up at 4.30 anymore. You could only drink so much so often. And so, you know, I, I was tamed. But now here I had nothing but free time. And after a couple months, I said, I cannot spend the rest of my life every day waiting for it to be five o'clock yeah. so I can start drinking. So the only solution is to have it never be five o'clock. And then I did it. No people say, well, to. if you didn't have DTs and stuff, you weren't a drunk. I'm, All right, I wasn't a drunk. I mean, what's what's that? Some kind of claim to fame, you know? I had, And people say, you didn't have a problem. I'm like, well, tell my wife, tell my family. I got a friend. I think this is in my book. And it might have been in the documentary. I got a friend whose mother was an alcoholic counselor for decades, mm. long retired. And she said, you know, Jackie, I never really talked to you about your drinking problem. I said, you know, I've never really been able to, to define it or put a finger on it because I never got up in the morning and had a shot of vodka. I never sat and watched the Yankee game and drank beer. And I never sat there working on my jokes and, and drank, you know? And I look and she's smiling. And I'm like, what are you smiling at? She said, anybody that uses the word never to describe their drinking is an alcoholic. <laughs> That's what she said. And I was like, and it's so astute because I'm I'm bragging about when I didn't drink, you know? And so, so who wow. knows? Who knows? That's pretty crazy. Fuck. Right? Yeah. It's cra and so meanwhile, I'm all, I'm at the end of the street. I in fucking this use never all the time. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. Of and course. I'm always lying. Right. It's, I it, never drink on stage. And then you can find a bunch of times I'm drunk on stage. But, you know, it's just, you know, I, I used to never drink on stage. But I would have a, a, a Budweiser bottle with water. Oh, and I would that. lead the people into the sea like the Pied Piper yeah. and I drink. And then when we went to start promoting Heineken, I'd have a Heineken bottle full of water. Like the first night I went on stage at Rascals, hey, and, you know, Mark said, why didn't you warn me? Mark Magnuson, the owner of Rascals, yeah. he said, we only had four cases of Heineken. We sold it out in the first half hour. Oh, wow. He said, because when you hold up a Heineken bottle, they're drinking with you. Yeah. He said, and Heineken owes you because when they go out the next night, they're going to drink Heineken together because they're still drinking with you. you but I would Heineken? drink water. I would drink water. I drink water. And then I'd tell the girls, listen, before I do Stump the Joke Man, bring me a light beer. So all of a sudden I get done with the show and start Stump the Joke Man. I put down the Heineken bottle full of water. And they give me a light beer. So to the audience, it looks like I'm downshifting from Heineken to light beer. When yeah. Meanwhile, I'm having my first sip. and But I'd still manage to get pretty plowed, you know, really? you know, because, you know, once you start the engine, you know, it's a whole long story. What's, what's, did you just quit? Just like, eh, I'm done. Or did you go to a meeting? Did you get someone? No, I, I literally, I quit on Sanco de Mayo. Not by design. It just, I didn't even know, realize it. I was at a christening <clears throat> with Nancy and it was kind of low rent. And at the end of the meal or whatever it was, the ceremony and everybody's sitting around and big round table, you had a coffee cup and the girl would come around with a, a pitcher of beer. That's how high class this was. I was, we were always 
the first people at the party or the wedding or whatever to make sure we took full advantage of that cocktail hour. Yeah. And I was always at the end of, you know, before we went to sit at the table, I'd get a couple extra, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. No, I know. The <clears throat> and I got to the point where I, I, you'd always stand there waiting for your wife, waiting for your wife. One day I said, cause I knew I couldn't, couldn't start drinking until we got in the car, which sounds horrible, no. <laughs> but I couldn't start drinking until we got in the car. One day I said, what's holding you back? So I took a beer and all of a sudden it was like, take your fucking time. You know, so yeah, I stayed, yeah. sometimes I'd finish a beer and <clears throat> I'd, I'd hide the empty and start a second beer just before we even got there. So here we are at this christening. And I knew at some point I, I knew I had to stop because I had way too much free time, I, but I, it was March, April, May. So it was like May. So it was like uh, two months of, mm -hmm. of having too much free time and waking up with a, you know, waking up with a hangover and realizing you don't have a job and your marriage is breaking up and blah, blah, blah. And we're sitting at this christening and the girl came around and literally had the coffee, in the coffee uh, pitcher in her left hand and the, beer thing in her right hand and it, the beer was being poured into a water goblet. I pushed back the water goblet and pulled over my coffee cup and turned it over. And you would have, Nancy was like, she saw a fucking ghost. She said, what are you doing? I said, I'm done. And the girl poured my coffee cup and that was it until the first weekend I was sober me and Nancy went for dinner with John and Susanna, Suttering John and Susanna. Yeah. Went to some nice restaurant in the city. I said, no, I'm not true. No, you, 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 you fucking, you're fucking drinking. You, you, what do you mean you're not drinking? You're drinking. And he, the only guy in my life that peer pressured me into it. Next thing I know, me and John and these two beautiful women are riding around Central Park in a handsome cab with a six pack in a paper bag, you know, like <laughs> it just, it was so wrong. And then I said, you know what? That is that was the only little slide I had back, and that yeah. and it's been over twenty two years. And smoke just, weed, huh? Ever smoke weed again? Please, and you know, of course, all the people in AA. Oh well, you're not sober. You still smoke pot, and fuck you. There's no rules. Of course, I, I smoke pot if I feel like it. <laughs> I don't smoke pot if I don't feel like it. Yeah. Sometimes I go a long time without smoking it. I've been growing it for twenty two years. Most of it I just give away. You know, you, you have your own rules. Yeah. You know. And the worst thing about pot is it could loosen you up so you take a drink, but that's never happened. Yeah. You know, and um, and it's really weird. I mean, <clears throat> people that quit drinking, everybody has this story. When you first stopped drinking, <clears throat> I didn't go anywhere for like, I, I guess it might have been a week or two weeks because I feel like I can't go somewhere. If I walk into a bar, people are like, you imposter, what are you doing here? You're not drinking, get out of here. Yeah. You don't realize that nobody gives a shit no about gives, you. You know what I noticed? I, I'll tell you, like someone was talking about that with me, uh, someone who was, had gotten sober and he was on tour with me and I drink a lot. And uh, he said, I feel so weird not drinking around you, around you. And I said, I don't give a fuck if you drink. I don't notice if you have a drink in your hand or not. All I care about is me. Like you think I'm, you think, you think I'm like, God damn it. He's not fucked up enough. This isn't going to be a Absolutely. Fun absolutely. I'm thinking everybody knows. So I said, you know what? And I just said, anybody could stay home and stay sober. I got to go out and you go out to a bar and you get a, a glass of tonic and yeah. put a stirrer in it 
Nobody knows you're not drinking. Nobody cares. I Meanwhile, I'm standing there drinking tonic and somebody will stand there talking to me for a half an hour and not even take a sip of that. And you yeah. want to say, are you going to fucking drink that or not? You know, yeah. What the hell are you doing? You know, somebody's got to drink. And uh, and you realize that it just doesn't matter to anybody else. No. no and that's a whole, it, it's as obvious as that should be, it isn't. And nobody cares. And everybody says, is okay if I drink in front of you at dinner? Like, what do, you know, oh, my, my family, my whole family, <clears throat> they're all crazy drinkers. We're all crazy drinkers. And, you know, yeah. I just, you, you just, you don't even, I don't even deal with it because it's not an issue. I don't think about it. My know? wife's the only one, like, I, I, I'm i not drinking right now. And uh, the first night I started. I, you mean this afternoon or? Well, <laughs> <laughs> who knows what happens tonight <laughs> <laughs> but you mean you're taking it light type I'm, no I'm, I'm just I, i've been uh trying to lose weight so my my whole thing is my fucking weight it, it, my weight has gotten so out of control and uh so i'm trying to get in control of my weight and there's no way to do that with drinking uh, for me drinking opens the gate to all the fucking just destroying pizza and and just like the little things i i'm weird about teetotaling i can Either follow a strict set of rules, or I can just do whatever the fuck I want. It's it's so hard, yeah, to do it halfway. You know, yeah, you know that that's the problem with pot because I smoke pot, and I'm gonna develop. You know, I talked my. I said, listen, Jackie, you can smoke pot, but you can only smoke pot if you don't eat the cookies and don't eat the ice cream. And I try and make yeah. a deal with myself, and sometimes I get away with it, and sometimes I don't. Sometimes I smoke some pot and say, "Fuck you, Jackie, I'm having a cookie." You know, which which is you know the little battles oh. that losing weight is just so hard. Uh, we went to a we went to a play and I ate uh, some edibles, and the begin I forget what play it was. Oh, it was Beetlejuice, and uh, the opening whole bit he does is about how everyone's gonna die and you can't stop it. And I started having a panic attack, and I ate an entire bag of Skittles, like the big bag of Skittles. <laughs> I ate the whole bag of Skittles, and I was like, just because you were upset. I looked at the calories. I think it said eight hundred on the bag, and I was like, I don't even want to see how many servings that is. But like, I ate a whole fucking bag of Skittles. I can get out of control on marijuana. The um, but I'm weird about like my the first night I didn't drink. My fucking wife poured a glass of wine. She never drinks. I go the fuck are you doing you're i'm always the only one drinking you're never the one drinking she goes it's a good wine and, I went, <laughs> and then the next night she made a, a a signature cocktail i go the fuck are you doing she goes, yeah. she's just but but uh yeah, that's that, i mean that's that's just, you know howard never drank <clears throat> ever not really? a drop maybe maybe in college or whatever he never drank a drop until I left the show. And then really? he started drinking wine with his new wife and, and going out. And how wow. funny is that? Because he never, ever sat and had a beer. He didn't me like and Fred didn't, or Gary. Wait, did Howard like hang out after the show and go, let's go to TGI Fridays? Say that again. <laughs> did Howard Stern in, in after 15 the show. years? There was never, wow, this has been a good year. We're number one. Or that, what a great five years. We picked up 20 markets. Let's all go out to dinner. It was never any kind of, uh, there's not even, the, the few pictures of us together are so rare. There's a picture from when we, when we played softball for WNBC at Shea Stadium before yeah. City Field. Me, Howard, Robin, Gary, and Fred with our NBC uniforms all together. And then when we got the, C, uh, the Channel 9 show, the girl that was the uh, 
the publicity person obviously didn't get the memo. So all of a sudden she herds us together. And there's a publicity shot of the five of us. And Gary is even wearing I Stump Jackie the Joke Man t-shirt. Yeah. And you can read on Howard's face that he's not happy about this because this is his show. And here's what, what this girl perceived to be the show, which was accurate. Yeah. And here's this shot. But there is no... No group shots, no, no ever, let's all go out and celebrate or let's, you know, or even uh, pats on the back. It just did not exist. It just. It's interesting. I, w- I wish uh, when someone dies, their therapist could write a book about them because I'd love to read Howard's. I, re- I would love to read an honest version of Howard because the same way they did it to Jordan. Like when they t- had B. Jordan talk about him, and I think it's because everyone seriously couldn't give a fuck jordan couldn't affect them anymore and they were like oh he was a fucking lunatic like he was a the most competitive person you'd ever meet he would fuck with you in practice like when they did the the documentary on um i guess it was on espn but when they did that documentary on him i would love to know because howard is is kind of tight-lipped but i would love to know what made him great like i would in his heart of hearts what was what story or stories was he telling howard you know, what was Howard telling Howard? What, what, yeah. you know, like, I, I, I don't want to give Jackie more money. I don't want to give Fred more credit. I don't want to do this. I don't want, you know, but 99.9% of his calls were so on the money. You know, he hated Johnny Carson. I would bet dollars and donuts. Of course he didn't hate Johnny Carson. He hated Johnny Carson because everybody else loved Johnny Carson. And that yeah. was the rub, you yeah. know? You know, one of the things, this is, this is so wrong, but so funny. When we, we first went to mornings in New York, I, once again, I say we, <clears throat> Howard's whole thing was that he fought in Vietnam, which if you do the math, he was like three years old. And he told everybody he was half Italian and half Jewish. Yeah. Because all of Long Island is either Italian or Jewish or half Italian and half Jewish, whatever, <clears throat> made total sense, right? Yeah. And when we first got, to mornings in New York, nobody knew anything. It was, it was like, hey, I, I heard a rumor Robin's black. Is that possible? Is Robin black? You know, people really didn't know, and it was, <clears throat> it wasn't the first day. I mean, it, it was it, the word got out or whatever. So I'm playing uh, stump the joke man at uh, Chuckles Comedy Club, and this is real early. Like you know, we'd been in mornings just for a little while. <clears throat> and, you know, I'd have the guys stand up and ask the questions. And uh, and the guy stood up and says, uh, he says, Jack, can I ask you a question? I'm like, sure. He says, uh, is Howard really half Jewish? And I said, yes. He said, what's the other half? And I said, even more Jewish. <laughs> 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 Maybe my best head lip ever, which is so wrong. Oh, God. And the place went just berserk, you know, which is just stupid, you know. Wait, let's uh, wait. I want to talk to you about, I, I don't want to keep you too long, but I want to talk to you about. Listen, I got nowhere to go. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to keep you from drinking. So oh, I'm going to keep you. talking to you to keep you out of the fucking refrigerator and the wine cellar. That's I appreciate all. it. Okay. What, uh, what do you, what do you love about open water swimming? Like you swim and you, they, one of the big things in the, in the dock is about how you like to get out in the water and swim. I'm a poor kid. From the North Shore of Nassau County on Long Island, I ain't never had a pool. Yeah, my whole life, 
from the time I can imagine being alive, my aunt lived literally a stone's throw from where I live now. Okay. Yeah. So <clears throat> every weekend, my entire life, my uncles, my uncle Clem and my aunt Edith lived on Monroe Avenue, which is one of the, it's called the president. This is hysterical, but president streets in Bayville. I never could talk about this on the air because you didn't want people to you pinpoint know, where yeah. you were. <clears throat> now I don't care, you know, but it's called the president streets, Monroe, Washington, Adams. I live on Quincy. There is no President Quincy. Whatever <laughs> fucking idiot named the street. Named the President Street. So I'm on Quincy and my aunt's on, on Monroe. And every weekend, my aunt and my mother would take me and my cousin and my brother. And then as the kids, more kids came along and we would spend the Saturday and Sunday on the beach and the uncles would sit and watch the Yankees and drink beer or booze. And my great uncle Len was a huge politician who was literally the national chairman of the Republican club. He was Eisenhower's campaign manager in 52 and 56. Wow. So he was always on meet the press. So here's the three uncles or four, three uncles getting drunk, switching between the Yankees and meet the press and getting drunk. It was just, it, it's storybook, right? Yeah. So I was on that beach all the time, but that's where I always swam. We didn't have a pool. And I lived for it and always loved it. And now I'm literally 20 seconds from there. And and I just love, I like swimming. It's just so relaxing. It's so yeah. great. Nothing weird about me. It's not like. Oh, no, I look, love it. I love it too. Look, look my wife's, what I My wife's a big, my wife grew up on a, uh, grew up in, on a lake technically. And uh, she had a lake growing up that they used to go to every weekend. And she, my wife will just swim into the and and like i have a healthy fear of open water just because i grew up on an ocean and so i understand limitations i understand that's a, that's a little bit scarier yeah. but my ocean. wife will swim out deep as fuck and just sit there in the water and float and then swim back and just and my daughters are like that too now but it's so interesting it's such an interesting part of you that i would have never <clears throat> thought like i just you, you know you never think of like how people either get their exercise or or like or uh, get out and get active and and the fact that you swim I just thought that was so cool I have oh you know sometimes I jump out of bed at seven in the morning <clears throat> sometimes I say no me and Barbara can have tea and toast first sometimes a second cup of tea and I still I still revel in not getting up at four thirty I look yeah. I to this day I look at the clock and it says eight o'clock and I'm like I I'd already be working for two hours yeah. and I'll and I swim this big loop. And I just love it. And if it's and if it's raining, or if it's oh, a little bit rough, and raining. some mornings it's like a pond, and I, and I got a nice outdoor shower. So you take a long swim, and then a nice hot outdoor shower. I come home like, I told Ian, one thing that we're I'm not shamelessly plugging my documentary uh, Joke Man that's available on Amazon and iTunes, but um, in the in the documentary, we spend a whole day. You know, he f comes with me in in the car to do a gig in South uh, South Philadelphia, South Jersey, right near Philadelphia, and it's a long ride. <clears throat> we do the whole thing, and he sh shoots both shows, and we're together the whole day. Oh, I got a great story for you. But then we get home. 
When I come home from a gig in the summer or into October or starting whenever the water is reasonable, <clears throat> that's how I end my night. I strip naked. I put on my bathrobe. I go down, strip off my bathrobe and go for a nice long swim. That's how I end my nights. Whether that's I get home at 11, great. 12, 1, 2. Sometimes I'm coming home from Boston. I get home at 4 because you go for that swim. And then take a hot shower. You sleep like a baby. So oh. I hope people don't think that we stage me going for a swim at the end of the no, day. It looked very, it looked very organic, and and I understand that. I uh, I have a polar plunge, like so. I I love cold water. So to, this morning I did two sessions of the. I did sauna polar plunge, sauna polar plunge. But and we have a polar plunge here. I love getting in a polar plunge. You have that my, cold? Yeah. Oh, that, you know. I'll take you outside. I'll show it to you. Oh, that's, uh, you know, I, I did the, the uh, 10th Street Baths in New York. They oh, have, I've been to those. Yeah. <laughs> where they beat you with the. With the birch bra beach branches. Beat you with the birch branches, and then you jump in the ice cold water. I mean, for years when I was going there, there was two celebrities or semi-celebrities. There was my 8x10 and John Amos. <laughs> we were the only two people on the like, John Amos. What a, what, what a cast I've of I've been to that one a number of times. I love that one. That's great. And the old, the, you know, the old Jewish men, they, they're built like Rodney with that hanging sacks yeah. beating each other. Yeah, I love that. And that, that polar plunge there is ice cold. Oh. But I love getting in a polar plunge at the end of the day and then taking a, I have an outdoor shower. I tell you, if you want to feel like a millionaire, get an outdoor shower. That I I tell people how to, you know, we, me and Nancy went out, Fred Norris and his wife, like she might not even been his wife that he rented a house in Amagansett. Now, now he's had a house out there forever, <clears throat> but they'd rent a house for a couple of weeks and nobody knew that me and Nancy would go out and spend a weekend with Fred and Allison. Cause then the whole time on the show be, what's Fred like? what did he do? What we, you know, and, and yeah. he was my buddy. So it was hush, hush, <clears throat> you know, not, not, subversively so just none of your fucking business type thing yeah <clears throat> but they rented a place with an outdoor shower and i was like it doesn't get any better than this it's i don't know why it's not it's a it's a shower what is the difference i fucking can't shower inside anymore it's, it's i only shower outdoors my parents came over and stayed with us for a week and my dad said something and i said i said why don't you use my outdoor shower because it's it's off to that side where where my gym is my dad's like, I don't know about that. And I go, it's completely private. No one will see you. People think you're weird. It's so <clears throat> fucking easier. It's easier to shower outside. It's more enjoyable, especially at night when it's a little cold and the water oh. warms you. It is the greatest feeling I've ever had. First outdoor shower I ever had was at my at our uh, on our honeymoon. And I said to my wife, and it was wide open in the treetops. And I said to my wife, I'm, it, I'm getting an outdoor shower. Like, we will have an outdoor shower. We have an outdoor shower here, too, but I'm not allowed to shower here because there's a bunch of women. But, yeah, I... I enough, been... enough said. Yeah, I get you. <laughs> yeah, they don't like seeing you naked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Apparently, there's a thing on YouTube. You, you don't want anybody fainting. Yeah, you yeah, know? exactly. <clears throat> so wait, how did you meet Mark Cuban? Oh, okay. We'll get to that. Let me tell you where... where I, I want to tell you one story first. Sure. So, it it's so great to have stuff that just happens that shows up in the dock. It's terrific. All right, we wanted to get Artie Lang in the dock and it's hard to meet up with people. Ian mm -hmm. was trying to, especially Artie, he's trying to connect with Artie, never connected with Artie. I mean, Willie Nelson was fully into doing it it's and crazy. it took a year to, to coordinate so we could shoot him. Me and Willie have been exchanging dirty jokes for 20 years. We're like pals, not, not yeah. knock around pals, but pals nonetheless because he loves dirty jokes as much as I do. But that took a year. 
So Artie wants to do the documentary. He gets in trouble. He's in jail. He's in the hospital. He's in rehab. The documentary took so goddamn long to get done that Artie was cleaned up out of rehab and out in, and the documentary wasn't done. So Ian got to interview him. Yeah. It was just great. So we do this two shows in South Jersey or whatever. And we get in the car to come home. <clears throat> he takes the video camera and puts it in the back seat, puts it away and puts it in the back seat. And we're driving home on Jersey Turnpike and the phone rings. Hello? Jackie, it's Flo. It's Mark Bowman. Listen, man, we're on the road with the Happy Together Tour and everybody's climbing the walls. We're in fucking Kansas City. I'm here with the Cow Sills and Joey from Badfinger and the whole gang. Is I said, you know what? I'll call Martling. Why don't I just call Martling? So I'm going to put you on the speakerphone. And he puts me on the speakerphone and I blew them away for 15 minutes. And you can hear the fuckers laughing and screaming. Yeah. Imagine having that spontaneous button. The camera's in the fucking backseat. Yeah. I was like, so you win some, you lose some, you know. Oh. So, so I'm working so hard that I'm going to Chicago or I'm going to Boston because they're paying me really well. Yeah. I mean, like, I forget the fact it's fun. <clears throat> I'm getting drunk, getting hot. You know, it, it's such a joy. I mean, yeah. it's so hard physically. It's hard to wait, you know. You know, I'm not starting my day at nine. I'm starting it at four. So, yeah. you know, but, uh, so we're syndicating to all these places. <clears throat> so we syndicated to Dallas. I don't know Mark Cuban. I never heard of Mark Cuban. I guess he had already made his millions or a bunch of millions in, in California. And the guys call me from Dallas. No mention of his name, but I wouldn't have known his name anyway. <clears throat> Jackie, we are such huge fans, man. We can't believe the Stern Show's on here in Dallas. It's really huge. We got a new company going called AudioNet.com, and we really want you to come out and do a promotion. We got no money. You know, it's a startup. We got no money, but we'll give you a promotion. And what it was was Mark Cuban went to, I guess, was a Hoosier and went to, is that Indiana State or whatever Probably, it yeah. was? And he wanted people to, he wanted himself. And people to be able to hear the college basketball games on the internet. Now, if you remember long enough ago, the internet was just text. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it was the World Wide Web that mm -hmm. looked so much better. And then pictures were added, which was a whole nother level. And then sound was going to be added. So Cuban's on the cutting edge of this and he wants to have the Indiana State or whatever college basketball games, he want those, wants those to play on audionet.com. And they they said, we want you to help. I said, listen, I can't come out there. I said, I'll tell you what I do. Well, I'll do, why not? I send you a bunch of my stuff and you can do whatever you want with it. <clears throat> I send them everything I had, which I don't know what it was. Videotapes, cassette tapes. Audio, I don't think I had even CDs yet because it was, it, I think it was 93. I, I should look up the exact date. Yeah. But, but, Audio on the internet was brand new. It was a whole new, it seems like a no brainer now, but there was a whole nother level of, cause it's so much more bandwidth for a picture and so much bandwidth for, for audio yeah. and forget about the bandwidth for video. You know, that was so, it was a slow, gradual thing, <clears throat> but now it's ridiculous. Cause you can't even remember when there wasn't email, you know what uh, I mean? Yeah. So, uh, 
So they take all my stuff and made a six hour endless loop. And I guess had a button on audionet.com. So if you're listening to the college basketball game and it's halftime, the college kids could push a button and hear Jackie's dick jokes. And like, but I never heard from, I never heard anything from it. They, they, they're promoting me. They're talking about me. So that was great for me. And they had me on the website or whatever. And then a couple of years later, I see broadcast.com sells for $4 billion. And it's, and then broadcast.com, formerly (laughs) audionet.com sold by, you know, entrepreneur Mark Cuban, where I'm like, wow, you know, whoa, you know, but he cops to that. And which obviously he did in the documentary. It's so funny because Howard got him on the show after I was gone. And, and Mark goes, uh, and you, I, I have this on uh, this piece of videotape. I didn't use, of course, I couldn't use it. He goes, Howard, I got to, I got to give credit to your guy, Jackie here. You know, without him, he really helped me. You know, when we needed, when we needed uh, content, your boy, Jackie, here really helped. And then Howard goes, that's not Jackie. That's Fred. Jackie's not here. He said, well, when, when Jackie was Fred, you know, and they yeah. made a joke about it. But then I asked him to to do the little piece of video for the, th- and that's, because that's so out of left field. It, I well, mean, come on, Sean cu- Young, Ken Gillette. Sean Young was the one where I was like, wait, how long has she known Sean Young? We did a movie together and we yeah. hit it off really well. You know, she's a wacko and she's great. You know, Rachel, do you know, Rachel, do you know why Italians wear uh, gold chains? <laughs> so they know where to stop shaving. <laughs> This is my favorite my fa- the fa- my favorite thing about you like I could I could deep dive the stern experience uh, the 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 but the, the, the fucking Kennison the Rodney all that stuff I am so th- <clears throat> I had no idea what to expect I had no idea if you were going to know who I was or oh if you're going to say now you're a guy that tells jokes you really think that's fucking comedy I didn't know you you don't know what oh, you're no, stepping into My favorite into. thing about you is the this jokes. Is, you know, my favorite thing about you is the jokes. My favorite thing about you is that uh, and I and I'm I'm paraphrasing and correct me if I'm wrong but you believe the jokes are for us. And so you believe and that's the beauty of this show. I was like I was like if I don't get you to tell me some jokes to Chris <clears throat> why don't you guys come over here so we can sit and J- and Jack you'll just tell us some jokes. Just would, tell us your <clears throat> tell us Whatever you feel like your your top your top favorite. Well, jokes. you can't you you know like like who's a, your favorite uh, pieces of ass in your life? You know you can't. My do wife, that. You, right? Your wife. Oh that, God, that stock answer. And, Come uh, on, guys, sit over here. <clears throat> I'll tell you one modern. So a girl goes to high school prom, and the next day she sends her mother a text. You know this? No, I, I'm <clears throat> bad at street. Mom, jokes. the prom was great, but now I'm at the beach, mom, and I'm freaking out. I got cum in my hair. So her mother sends her back a text. Honey, glad the prom was great. Listen, sometimes when you're blowing a guy and he decides he wants to shoot his wad on your face and he yanks his cock out of your mouth, they can't really control where that stuff goes. Sometimes some of it goes in your hair, but it's not a big deal. Just go in the water and it'll wash right out. So she sends her mother back a text. Mom. Thanks for the information, but I meant to type gum. <laughs> That's a classic. That's great. It's it's wow. funny because any joke I know, you already know the punchline too. Well, if, you know. Doctor says I have good news and I have bad news. Your wife's been in an accident. Uh, that's already 15 different jokes. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, you know, the, the, bait the, the traps. The bad news is. 
you're gonna have to uh she's paralyzed you're gonna have to cook and clean for her and take care of her for the rest of her life wipe her ass it's gonna be an ongoing process day in and day out she's dead <laughs> <laughs> like or i was only kidding you know it's yeah. the thing where they, the guy's wife is missing no and uh they they say hey uh they come to the door and say listen uh you know, we found your wife, you know, uh, we were trawling, troll, trawling in the bay and we pulled her up and she had drowned and there were like lobsters and crabs, you know, clipped onto her body. And it's really disgusting mess. Uh, what should we do? And he said, uh, give me the lobsters and the crabs and reset the trap. <laughs> <laughs> all that the best wife joke of all time is. The wife says, get the fuck out. Get the fuck out. And as her husband's walking out the door, she says, I hope you die a slow, painful death. And he says, so now you want me to stay? <laughs> I love, I, you know, I love them all. Don't, don't. Even. I love all of them. It's the best thing. I, I was in college one night and my buddy came in and we, and we had weed and he said, hey, let's just get high and just tell each other street jokes. And we were like, what? And he's had a joke book. And we got high and we laughed. A good joke. There's something to it. It just is so it it it's, it's a pure. Treat. It's a it's pure. The greatest compliment I ever got. I was doing a show at the <coughs> a show with there's a bunch of us at the Friars yeah. Club in the little in the dining room. Not in the, you know, small, not tiny, but a, just the dining room. And we're all, and I'm, I go on stage and I got Jerry Stiller and Ann Mira, and Ann Mira sitting at my feet. Yeah. Which is intimidating. Yeah. I mean, he's beyond fucking brilliant. And he always was. And this might even been before sign for whatever. But I'm killing him, you know, and you, you don't know whether he's jerking you off, you know, because he's laughing. <clears throat> and I got done. And he said, you know, I can't believe how much I enjoyed your act. Those, he says, you realize your jokes, they're each like, a small one act play. You know, there's a little premise and there's distinct characters and there's an ending. And I was like, I got the chills. It was like the finest, like it, it was, it was a compliment. He, it wasn't like, Hey, you were fucking funny, man. You yeah. Know? Yeah. 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 It was really interesting. And that was very cool. You're the fucking best, Jackie. You're the fucking best. Thank the you. The girl calls the doctor oh, and this. says, doc, I got diarrhea. Can I take a bath? He says, if you got enough. <laughs> <laughs> Keep right. going, keep going, keep going. Keep I, going. you know, I'm wearing out my welcome. All right, no, 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 no. You're the best, dude. I love you. I, I, uh, everyone should check out your documentary. Check out your book, The Joke Man. It's the name of the documentary. It's the name of the book also, right? The name of the book is The Joke Man Bow to Stern. You cannot just go bow to Stern because if you Google bow to Stern, you get a seventh grade sailing manual. Okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it's the joke man bout a stern, but the uh, the documentary is called Joke Man, and it's it's, it's doing awesome. well, and it's I'm awesome. so thrilled. I'm it's so thrilled. awesome, and uh, I, everyone that listens to this podcast knows very seldomly when I get a piece of content for someone to promote, I, do I read it or watch it? I just kind of watch the beginning and then go, oh, okay, I got it. But I sat through and watched your entire documentary in one sitting, and absolutely loved it. You're such a huge part of my journey into where I am today with, with, from comedy to radio to podcasting. So to get down, to sit down with you is a, is a real honor. I, you know, I love that. I mean, Artie, 
Artie Lang used to come with his friends to Rascals to yeah. laugh at my stupid jokes. Artie you know? loves you. And and it's it shows the one thing that shows in that documentary is that everyone loves you. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you that I don't mean whatever. I think I think Stern does too. I <clears throat> I wonder he has to. What his reaction will be seeing this, you know? Because nobody talks out of school. They, the they might be saying that I'm writing the jokes. You know, yeah. Somebody wrote me an email and said, how funny is it that Howard spent all this money and time on psychiatrists so they could talk him into the fact that it wasn't you making him funny, <laughs> which is just <laughs> so unfair, but it just made me laugh, you know? Yeah. No, I think, I think, I mean, it doesn't sound like, if if I get to... If I get to be where you are today, I'd be a very happy man. It seems like you have, and the one thing I left that documentary with, and I, this is the one thing I was dealing with to this morning, like I was, I do my writing every morning and I try to have one original thought and then work on that thought. And uh, my one thought, my one word today was surrender. I don't know why. I just said, uh, could I surrender to everything? And because I'm a little bit of a control freak and could I surrender everything and let everything happen to me? And just smile and and, and and like my wife does and smile and let things happen to me and be like cool with where I am and cool with where I go and just be like, eh, because I used to be that guy. And now I'm this guy that's like really micromanaging. And I looked at your doc and I went, he seems like someone who's really fucking happy. <clears throat> hey, thank you so Jackie, much. Jackie, thank you. Fuck yeah.